Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Stefan Molyneux. I am the host of Freedom Main Radio. I have cornered and captured the elusive Veronique de Rougy, uh, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Institute. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. Now, you fall into the libertarian camp of uh, economists. Uh, um, I think that's a, a fair assumption to, to make. A very fair assumption. Okay. I would be and, offended uh, if I had figured it out. Right. <laughs> well, it's, I think it's pretty clear. And um, so I wonder if we could just uh, take a quick sprint through what is happening at the moment in the U.S. Um, part of me thinks maybe the Titanic has hit the iceberg this time, but they, they seem to be these like Houdini-like escape artists that, that get out of fun- fundamental mathematics so easily. It's like they're just this well-oiled machine of fiscal evasion. Uh, so what do you think is happening with the slim down and what effect do you think this may or may not have on the upcoming, I guess it's what, about two weeks away now, the, the debt ceiling problem? So, I mean, like the, the shutdown, right? I mean, they just couldn't agree on, I mean, like, let's put it this way. The Republicans had no real organized strategy um, because the reality is like they don't care. I mean, they actually claim to be the party of small government, but they kind of like pretty much lo- like all sorts of spending. And so now the government is shut down because they couldn't find an, an, an agreement. And you would think each time there's such a big fight that maybe that's the moment where they're going to realize they can cannot go on forever like this. And we're on a, on a very unsustainable path and they're going to do something. But I just don't buy it. I really actually... Don't buy it. I actually think that they're going to find some sort of crappier agreement, something that will not put us on a different fiscal path and something that will probably not be beneficial for for taxpayers. I mean, we know Democrats don't want to cut spending. But I mean, one of the things that people kind of like tend to forget is the CR deal that the Republicans have proposed actually had $21 billion above the current fiscal path. So they're going to find something. And it's not going to be shrinking the size of government. And uh, and then they're going to forget about it. Well, of course, there is that old argument that everything which mathematically can't continue just won't. So at some point, you know, I mean, the Roman Empire fell. Uh, the, the British Empire collapsed. What? At some point, there has no. to be some fiscal reality. So I agree with you. But the question is, how is it going to fail? Right? I mean, like... Look, I mean, you have countries like France. I mean, they've been with their backs against the wall for years. But for them, what does it mean? It means high unemployment. It means high taxes, which, I mean, it's actually, I should say, high taxes, high regulate. I mean, high taxes for sure, high spending. And then as a consequence, slow growth, high unemployment, right? But they still fail to see, for the most part, that the crap, economy they live in is a product of their own making, right? So the economy has been failing quite tremendously, actually, for a long time, and still they're not quite seeing it. The same is true for us. Look, I mean, we always think when this whole thing is going to collapse, it's going to take the form of, like, cataclysm, we're not going to be able to pay our bills and all this, I actually think it's 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 worse than this. Actually, it's going to be a slow death, which is going to allow, allow the force of big government, which are very numerous, to kind of pretend that what we need is more spending and more taxes and more, you know, more regulation and more interference in our lives. 
and they're going to be able to get away for the most part um, without kind of like getting people to understand the connection between big government and the collapse of the economy. I do have a silver lining, if you want to hear it, which is I do think that in the U.S. there's something that is not happening in Europe, which is that there is a fringe of the American uh, people who actually is fed up with the government. And I actually think that distrust for government is growing and growing and growing. And that could actually really save us. Well, I mean, if you look at something like um, Japan has had this zombie erg undead economy for what 20 uh, or 30 years and they're still staggering along and uh, and doing their thing but again i just feel that there's that eye of the hurricane uh, that uh, there is i mean obviously the the falling birth rate uh, throughout europe uh, and and now growing in america as well uh, the, um, uh, the 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 demographic winter, the 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 uh, the baby boomers retiring and drawing more out of the social safety net than contributing to it, and so on. It just feels like there is this kind of perfect storm of fiscal problems, and of course, once you throw in the wars, that's uh, really staggering. And as you point out, I mean, the, the, a lot of people on the right are very sort of anti-big government, but it seems that they're anti-big welfare for the poor government, but they're not anti-big welfare for the military-industrial complex. They seem very keen on that, on the Republican side at least. Well, then, and the other thing is, like, if you want another evidence that the the, the Republicans aren't against uh, big government, it's not just the military, which they're very fond of, of paying for. Look, I mean, when they were given a chance to vote for farm subsidies without having to vote for food stamps, which goes to your point, right? I mean, they're, they're always happy to talk about reforming Medicaid, health care spending for poor people, and getting rid of food stamps. But when you actually split the farm bill and got rid of food stamps, Republicans voted in mass for farm subsidies. I mean, and then when you tell them, let's get rid of the XM Bank, which gives loans to a company abroad buying products for American company, mostly Boeing, they vote for that. The X- so the XM Bank, the SBA, which extends loans to small businesses, I mean, they're in favor of all of these. They're in favor of all of these. And of course, the military. I mean, let's, let's you know, that's that's a big one. So... One of the things that I find frustrating, I mean, it's it's baked into the system. I don't think there's much that can be done about it, is that everything that needs to be done will cause a lot of short-term problems. I mean, if you kill farm subsidies, which is so necessary, particularly for third-world farmers, so they stop having this rain of cloudy with the chance of meatballs, free food landing on them, destroying their local agricultural economies. But if you, say, got rid of the farm subsidies, food prices would go up as the investments and as the resource allocations um, were adjusted. You, 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 I feel you're getting French hands gestures of interruption. Please go ahead. I don't know. I mean, there's part of the food prices that will go up, but then remember also a lot of what the food subsidies are, the, 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 not the food subsidies, but the, uh, the farm subsidies are doing is actually artificially increase the price of food. Or and misallocate and 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 so if you get rid of this, you know, like for instance, like one of the main effect of farm uh, farm subsidies is that it raises artificially the prices of land, right? And so that means basically young farmers 
have like the cost of being a young farmer is gigantic, right? Their profit is smaller. They can reinvest much less because they pay these totally artificial, artificially high rents. You get rid of this. There may be a transition period, but you don't know. I mean, like, I think the final effect pretty quickly will be a very positive one. Oh, um, I completely agree with that. I mean, I'm a, a free market guy from here to eternity. So I completely agree that getting rid of the subsidies will bring prices down, will bring more people into the market, creativity and, and positivity and, and more capital investment would go into the uh, agricultural industry. But in the short run, there would be a lot of dislocations. I mean, it is pull the bandaid off, you feel better. But in the short run, there would be some some disruptions and dislocations. But the, the question is, how much I mean, Farm subsidies is about $30 billion, right? I mean, that's way too much. But I think that compared to the overall size of the farm economy, it may not be that, it's probably not that big. Then the question is, how much a distortion does it make? And I, I'm not, I'm not an, I mean, I'm always willing to complain about farm subsidies, but I'm not, I'm not a, a farm, a, a, an ag economist. So I'm not exactly sure actually how big of a deal it is. I think locally it is true. I mean, there's a gigantic distortion. The, the question is what would be the overall impact? So, I mean, I can tell you, for instance, one other thing that actually really makes my uh, blood boil all the time is the way we measure GDP, right? The way GDP, GDP is measured, and especially the impact of government spending on GDP, is really actually hurting us free market people in our argument that actually getting rid of, getting rid of government is good. Because it's, it's, you know, the way GDP is measured, as you know, $1 of government spending produces, no matter what it's, it's, it's spent on almost, is, is producing $1. Of, of economic growth, the reverse being true, right? You cut government by a dollar, and it looked in accounting terms as if, as if government, um, as if uh, the economy shrinks, right? And we, you and I, we know that's completely artificial. For one thing, this is just accounting. I mean, a lot of that dollar that's produced, that's spent, doesn't create any value. If you hire your deadbeat nephew as a bureaucrat, his salary counts as as growth creation, if you hire him in your private company, it doesn't. And that's probably the right way to measure it. But but so we know that a lot of this is just accounting and it's just artificial and it won't even we won't even feel it. The other thing is like this idea that within the private sector, very fairly quickly, companies don't reallocate and, and their their resources is, is, is not correct. So, for instance, Boeing, which gets tons of government money for, from defense, very quickly, as there was clear that some sequestration, some cuts to defense could happen, what they started to do is shift their activity, their activities from the defense contracted business to the commercial hmm. business. And I, and, and I suspect a lot of that would be happening in anticipation of cutting government spending. So the final right. effect. No, go ahead. You know? May not be so bad. I, but I sort of feel like because the U.S. is on these two-year cycles of elections and midterms and so on that 
you know, if, if I, I sort of put my evil shoes on, so if, if I was in power and I wanted to cut and, and all this kind of stuff, there would be a lot of short-term pain and certainly a lot of short-term complaints. Like up here in Canada, whenever they talk about cutting subsidies to farmers, the farmers take their tractors and drive at two miles an hour down the major highways, bringing economic and, and uh, business activity to a standstill. And so there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of problems. And then you reap the rewards sort of down the road. And, and I guess my concern is that the way the system is set up, Nobody wants to hand a good economy to their successor, right? They're going to make all these unpopular, difficult decisions. Everyone's going to complain. There may be some reallocation problems, some disruptions. And then the, the – so then they vote in the, the other guy because the other guy is going to say, well, look what this guy's doing, all this terrible stuff. And then you hand a good economy. The other guy gets in power and then the transition is complete and everything goes really well. And I think that's a kind of weird way to set things up. I know it's just sort of built into the system, but I can see why it's hard to make those decisions to cut take all the bullets it of disruption extreme. and hand a good economy to your successor. Well, it is, it is extremely hard because you know what? I mean, you, like the public choice economists have said it, you know, like interest groups are totally in control of a lot of the decisions that are made and politicians are captured by these interest groups. And, and, and I do, I do think that, you know, in addition, like, you and I, we're not walking the hall of Congress constantly talking about the benefit of actually cutting spending. Yeah, exactly. On the other hand, it's the farmers and the defense contractors and the who are and politicians are thinking, mm, you know what, you know, I would rather keep giving money to these guys rather than have them be super loud and and but look, look, I mean, for 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 months we've been hearing how um, the the cut, the sequestration cuts, were going to kind of like, you know, bring devastation to the economy, and defense contractors were going to have to lay off. Like, there was a study by uh, Stephen Fuller at GMU of all places at George Mason University talking about how, like, if you if you implemented some. $40 billion of cut for, through, uh, for defense, it would lead to over a million job loss and it would like, cost the economy $86 billion. And, well, you know, not much has happened. And it's very likely that not that much will happen anyway. Yeah, there's the old story, of course, uh, about the Second World War in America. They had all these troops coming home, and the government wanted to send up all these agencies to try and help the troops find work because, you know, millions of troops coming home. And, and so they, of course, like all government bureaucracy, it took them a year or two to get started. And by the time they, they were about to start, everyone already had a job because they just expect, you know, everyone just goes and finds what they need. And, and it is, yeah. I remember Harry Brown used to say this about if you privatized government education, you know, people say, oh, these changes, it would last about a week. People would sort it out, they'd figure it out. But there is this fear of change, this fear yeah. of, of uh, what's going to happen. And of course, everybody has their disaster scenarios, which are just designed to paralyze us into fear. No, I, I mean, I agree. And they have the bullet puppet, right? I mean, they, they're the one who are able to say, you know, this is what's going to happen to scare everyone to death. And strangely, they're not held accountable. They can go on and on making the same prediction. Paul, the great economist, the great Keynesian economist, Paul Samuelson, after Second World War, he said, you know, you know, unemployment will be out of control when you're going to bring all these troops home. 
I mean, the economy is going to be like devastated, reducing spending after, you know, like basically drawing down from the war is going to bring devastation to the economy. Not at all what happened. You would think that lessons like this would be learned, but no, because politicians are in the business of growing the government and they are captured by interest groups who benefit from these handouts. Right. And of course, you know, the, the, the fear mongering, uh, which allows you or gives us a desire to surrender to a strong leader is just constant and constant and constant. No, nobody's ever held to account. I mean, there's been no global warming for 16 years. I don't see my money coming back from taxes that went to pay for this stuff. That's that's natural and, and and really quite catastrophic. And again, it's, it's a lesson that seems really hard for us to learn that that these people just lie. Uh, and uh, it's just one one fear mongering scenario after another. And we constantly kept jittery and jumpy and, and wanting to hand over more and more of our freedoms for the sake of safety from the same people who are inventing the scares. Well, not for you and, and me, right? I mean, we're, we're not buying, we're not buying it. But like, think about, like, you know, for the first three years or four years of the Obama administration, you know, the Republicans have been all out rightfully denouncing the stimulus and, and the ability the ability of government spending to stimulate the economy. Um, and, and they've been criticizing Keynesian economics, which is the underlying economic theory. Well, as soon as you start talking about cutting defense spending, they are becoming military Keynesians. As soon as you talk about cutting defense, defense somehow is a department that actually is not subjected to the law of economics. Every dollar spent on defense somehow, you know, increases security. There's no waste there somehow. And and more stunningly, they will make the argument that if you cut defense spending, you will destroy the economy. And you're like... Seriously? Seriously? Yep. Seriously. But by that theory, by, by that theory, after the Second World War, America should have had a complete smoking crater of an economy because government spending, at the, you know, it went down like 90 percent from the, the wartime peak or something like that. And the economy boomed for almost 20 years once they cut that stuff. So, I mean, the historical precedent is, is completely against what they say. My concern, though, is also, I mean, if I was in charge of the government, I say, OK, I'm going to lay off a million government employees. Well, I don't know the degree to which I, I only had one job in the government once when I was a teenager. I was uh, working for the Department of Education uh, in my early 20s. And um, a lot of those people, I, I wasn't really sure would ever make a successful transition to a private company. I mean, they were kind of lazy, pretty entitled. They had a bad attitude. Uh, you know, they were just hanging on like grim death for their pensions. So I wonder if you cut these government workers, wouldn't they just transition to unemployment? I wonder if, you, if you'd actually end up saving that much at all. Well, maybe in the short term. I mean, maybe there will be, I suspect there will be very serious transition cost. But then again, you know, I mean, in order to freeze the the economy from, you know, the, the gigantic footprint of government, free the private sector, allow resources to flow to areas that are way more productive. I, I mean, I think this may be like an investment worth making, you know, and, and you know, the, the, the problem is, like, if we don't do it, look, you have a trade, right, where, where, where you have, you have, you have a, a tax base that 
shrunk because people have left uh, because of the terrible policy of the government, which meant no business, no growth, just taxes. So people left somewhere else. And you have left with a big, big um, government employee base and a lot of retired employees claiming gigantic pensions. I mean, I would cut my losses now. I mean, that's well, I agree. I mean, the, the plane is going into the ground yeah. and we either have wheels down or, you know, belly sparks. I mean, because there's no question it's absolutely unsustainable. The amount of political will that you would need, though, uh, and of course, the amount of indoctrination that people have been subjected to about the necessity of government, uh, both from the government schools through the largely government dependent media. I mean, you would need such a ferocious willpower of personality to actually get this across. I mean, it would need, I mean, Thatcher had a tough enough time of it when, you know, government was less than half the size it is now uh, in the 80s. And even that revolution didn't really last. It just seems like you're propping up these tent poles of something that just keeps coming down. I can't imagine how a political solution could occur. Well, I, you know, I agree with you. And most of the time I feel very negative and very pessimistic, but I will tell you something. One of the things that is happening here, right? I mean, you follow the NSA scandal, uh, the, the, the Snowden. I actually think that the fed up and the lack of trust of people being suddenly realizing that the government is spying on them, um, realizing that the IRS was, you know, was very, very abusive to nonprofit because they were conservatives or they were Tea Party or had the word Constitution or or Bill of Rights in their in their names. That is actually creating some serious suspicion towards the government. I'm not saying it translates immediately into saying, well, I guess if the government is not trustworthy and is spying on us, it means that government spending is not productive and we should cut it out. That being said, what I think it may do. It may. I'm not guaranteeing it's a it's it's a given. But what it may do is it actually create spheres of total. I don't want to say anarchy, but but close to right where people actually reclaim, yeah, a lot of their freedom, or try to reclaim a lot of their freedom and build. We can imagine kind of like a lot of entrepreneurs. You know, freedom entrepreneurs trying to actually create means for people to escape government. Uh, yeah, it just you know, it's I do not believe that people are going to wake up one day and be like, you know what? Yeah, no, yeah, the SBA really—it's not the role of the federal government. The money is going to small businesses who've never been able to get a loan anywhere else. Why should I put my money on the line for those? Now, I. I mean, I, I just don't believe it won't stop me from from saying it or say green energy loans. You know, I'm in favor of solar panels, but all these big company who are very well connected, why should they be getting or to even see, you know, the malinvestment that is, you know, the product of all this or the fact that a lot of the, the, the government money towards these green companies is actually crowding out, you know, capital uh, elsewhere. I just don't buy that one day people are going to be like, yeah, no. But I do really, I mean, a lot of my hope hangs in, you know, freedom entrepreneurs in other sphere who, and that people seems to be responding to this, 
and we'll create venues for people to kind of like hide, you know? Yeah, I mean, certainly the failure of major government institutions is creating a huge marketplace for alternatives. The only time I ever got involved in a legal dispute, the idea of going to court was insane. I mean, it was going to take 10 years, a quarter of a million dollars. So we went to arbitration, which was private and and uh, and it was fantastic. And we got it done in a month and it was, you know, win-win and all that kind of stuff. So I really do like that idea. I also do like the fact that I think 83% of the federal government is still functioning. So it's like 17% or so has shut down. So we're kind of having a dry run for a government shrinkage. And look, you know, the, the birds are still singing. The grass is still growing. You know, I mean, everybody gravity hasn't reversed itself. You know, fish aren't swimming through the air. Uh, and so people are saying, oh, we cut government. Hey, it would be like those couple of weeks in, in October 2013. Remember, that wasn't so bad, was it? Well, no. And, and think about if it were actually if they were actually closing down, it would be much better than it is right now. Right. Because these national park would be sold to private to the private sector who would have an incentive for the most part to actually charge people and, and, and letting them go through. And, and so, yeah, actually, I mean, you don't need to convince me that it would be, you know, much, much better. I mean, it, it would be much better. I, I do think that the, the, the big government people are overplaying their hands in like predicting all these, like, like, you know, it's just, you know, saying that the, the sky is going to fall and and people realizing it's not the case. I was actually, I have to say, I was also quite taken by the lack of public support for going intervening in in, uh, in Syria. You know, yeah. because one of the things that we found out was that, I mean, you and I didn't find this out. We know that Democrats are as willing to go to war as Republicans, right? Even though the public perception is like only Bush wants to go to war. Well, actually, no, Obama also does. I mean, in fact, if it didn't, he would not have, you know, doubled the troops in Afghanistan. We would not have been there for 13 years today. You know, I mean, all of that stuff, right? We know he's a drug warrior, I mean, you know, worse than than Bush and things like this. But I have to say, I mean, the the, the very strong public opposition to going into Syria. I mean, I, I thought that was, you know, that was a good, that was a good thing. The, the you know, the, um, I mean, obviously, uh, people are changing their perception about things like gay marriage. I, as a libertarian, I think it's not the role of the government to interfere in marriage, you know, it should not be, but, but, you know, I believe in marriage equality. If you're going to be giving stuff to some, you should give them to everyone, you know, gay or straight or, or whatever. And look, people moved. And I think that people are moving on the drug war, too. And, and, and again, because the government, again, is overplaying its hand by going into these uh, and uh, like ordering raids on states where medical marijuana is legal or Colorado and, and Washington state. We'll see what the federal government, uh, I mean, Obama hasn't like told his dog at the Justice Department to stay put, you know. And I, and I think these are areas where we're likely to experience more freedom. Will this have a good influence on the economic side? I, I hope so, right? I don't believe it's going to be entirely the case, but I do hope that it will create a sphere you know, uh, free of government enough that something good can come out of it. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, obviously, the the goal of the um, Al Qaeda, as they claim, and and the overseas terrorists is to do to America what they did to the Soviet. This is the Soviets in the 1980s uh, in the war in Afghanistan, which is to, since attack is far more expensive than defense, particularly if you're, you know, <laughs> dressing like the locals and doing guerrilla warfare, is to cripple the U.S. economy through uh, overseas engagements. And they seem to be doing a tragically great job at that. I mean, talk about just following your enemy's playbook to the letter. But of course, they can collapse 700 or 720 military bases overseas. They can collapse the war on drugs. When they collapse the war on drugs, they can collapse the prison industrial complex. When that happens, uh, uh, there'll be um, uh, less fear of, of violence in poorer neighborhoods, more, more, more manufacturing companies, more stores can go in there. There can be a sort of positive and virtuous cycle where when you collapse parts of government, you need less other parts of government. And, you know, it is certainly my hope that that upward cyclone can bring us all to a higher plateau. My goal, of course, is eventual statelessness, not that I think I'll live to see it. But um, but certainly there does seem to be uh, just as government swells as faster as it grows, it can also collapse faster as it shrinks. And I, I certainly think that there's a possibility for that. I agree. And and like if you think of a, I think the be- the biggest threat that we uh, that we face is um, in, in the U.S., is Obamacare, right? I mean, this is kind of a large and gigantic expansion of government. Government, it's already very present in the healthcare market in the U.S. and messing it up like royally. But I, 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 I see one very likely scenario and one, and possibly one happy scenario. The very likely scenario is the system will not collapse. Government has this incredibly dense center of gravity. And as the system crumbles apart, but not collapse, people are going to be demanding single payer. And, you know, like I can force, I can imagine, you know, the exchanges now where people are supposed to be buying their insurance or this, they're not functioning well. And I can imagine that the next step people, the government is going to say, you know what, let's forget about the exchange. We're just going to give subsidies to everyone. And here you you have you have a single payer system right now i do think that there is one so and then once this happened it just it is such a big chunk of the economy in addition to what they were already doing that it's just it's it's impossible to imagine that we're not going to stay in this slow growth path for a very long time lack of innovation and all of that bad things that being said i can also see a lot of people stepping out of the insurance market and say, you know, from now on, I'm going to start paying out of pocket. And when that starts to happen with high income people, then you will have medical entrepreneurs who will start providing services for lower income people and middle class people entirely out of pocket and completely outside of the insurance government, you know, awful alliance. That's my hopeful, slow probability scenario. Yeah, I certainly think that Obamacare is a step towards uh, socialized health care, which is, of course, has been the dream of the Democrats for the last 50 years or so. They, of course, continue to worship the European model, which is fine to do as long as you don't have to live there. Uh, and I think that there, it is a step towards it for sure, because this system can't possibly work. I mean, there's just no conceivable way 
that this um, 2,500 pages of additional re uh, regulation and legislation and so on uh, and 30 million more people pouring into the healthcare system and these, you know, they, the younger people just not signing up for, for Obamacare because they get that it's a ripoff. I mean, young men in particular, I mean, you don't see a doctor usually till you're in your late 30s or early 40s if you're a man. And so from, from men to women, from the young to the old, it's a massive cross-subsidy. And the young people are going to say, well, I'll just pay the fine. I mean, the fine is cheap enough and, I, you know, I can almost go get free health care if I want from emergency. So I think that that system uh, is going to be so ridiculously underfunded that premiums are going to have to rise so much that people are then going to clamor for, uh, you know, government, take it all over, take it out of my taxes. And uh, um, that's going to be just another burden that's going to hopefully break the back of the Leviathan with any luck. Yeah, we can always hope. <laughs> we can always hope. So um, the one last question I wanted to ask you is um, – how, when I was growing up in, in England in the 70s, I was an annoyingly politically curious kid, um, precocious to the point of just being grating. But I do remember in conversations with adults about socialism, even though England was pretty much mired in, in socialism and the trade union problems and all of that in the 70s, they still pointed across the English Channel. And they said, yes, but France, they're the real socialists. So my question is, is anyone in France even still talking to you yet? How on earth did you come out of this socialist womb into this uh, free market uh, life that you lead now? You know, it's like my parents are still wondering, how did that happen? <laughs> what did we feed her that changed her brain? And, uh, and it's funny because I wasn't precocious at all. I was very apolitical. I thought they, it was very uninteresting. And... I mean, like how unprecocious was I? I mean, like very, I mean, like it's only in my third year of college that I had this professor, uh, Bertrand Le Minicier, who was an econ professor who was a hardcore libertarian. And I was like, man, this is great. This makes total sense. And like, boom, overnight I was a libertarian. And that's when I started reading and all that stuff. But the thing that was interesting is like really at the time when I was in France, uh, becoming a libertarian, so I was like in my 20s. Um, see, not precocious at all. Um, it was, I was really at the fringe. I mean, it was a fringe movement. In fact, I mean, the, the other libertarians were like completely like they were still living in their parents' basement. They were, you know, crazy. Like, I mean, and now I go back to France, and well, I mean, most people are like as socialist and, and, and statist really as possible. Um, there's a, there's this growing libertarian free market movement of people who are like educated and, and, and actually kind of like, you want to talk to them and they're make sense and they have careers and they, so it's, it's kind of like, it is changing a little, is it changing enough to make a real difference? I, I, I don't know. I don't know, but it is, it is, uh, things are changing a, a little bit. And I, but I can tell you, man, when I, when I, when I was a libertarian in my, uh, in my econ class, you know, and, in, in my third year of college, it was, uh, it was like 150 of us. And there were like three of us who were libertarian <laughs> and the three of us are, are here in the U S in the DC area. Now. It's funny. Well, you know, it's interesting. I went uh, last year, I went to give a speech in uh, Sao Paulo, uh, Brazil, and uh, there were a bunch of uh, pretty high level politicians down sort of in the front. There was this two tier uh, hall that I was giving the speech in. 
And, yeah. you know, the top tier were all the rabble, you know, the people from the street and all that. Right. And then the bottom tier were all the high-level politicians. And uh, I got a little fiery and was just basically telling them about the immorality of the state and the evil of the initiation of force and the theft that is taxation and the mafia club that is the government and all that. And uh, it's funny because, of course, yeah, <laughs> they were, you know, kind of shocked. But the applause that came from the sort of upper back, the rabble area, because <laughs> they, they kind of got what I was talking about. And Brazil, of course, has suffered through, as a, has a lot of South America, suffered through socialism in a way that we can barely imagine. But uh, it was interesting to see the degree to which the people who weren't part of the, the sort of centers of power, which dominate so much of the social and, and even artistic discourse, how much they connect with and really really appreciate uh, somebody who can speak truth to power. And uh, so, yeah, it, it, you, if you look at the glowing center of social communication, it just looks all statism all the time. But if you kind of look around the penumbra, you look around the outside, there are a lot of people out there just yearning and burning and itching to be free. And, you know, if we can connect with those, I think there's nothing we can't accomplish. Yeah, and I'm sure you are contributing to actually helping this because, I mean, think about when you and I were growing up, there wasn't the Internet. There wasn't like podcast like yours. That didn't exist. There was like not, I mean, I mean, when I read Bastiat the first time, I got the book. I had to get a hard copy here in the U.S. and I was living in France. I read Bastiat in English the first time. I needed to have a hard copy. Now you go online and you get Bastiat, you get whatever it is you want, and you can watch whatever you want online and get, you know, and, and so I think technology I mean, is going to kind of like can really be helping us, you know, towards maybe a lot of the kind of world that you and I would like. That's the best chance we've gotten. It probably won't last for long. So we got to make the most of it. And then well, we thank you. So <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. I said, I said, and, and, but, but just on the off chance that technology doesn't serve us well, we, we should brainwash our own kids. <laughs> absolutely absolutely well thank you so much for your time um we'll obviously link to your blogs uh, do you have any upcoming projects or or things on the web that you'd like to tell uh, our listeners about no i have a uh, i have a uh, my um, in this upcoming asia reason magazine i have a i have a piece it's going to be online very soon uh, i have a piece of uh called the kids aren't all right and that actually shows how the government screws young people like big time. And we talk about farm, I talk about farm subsidies, the military, Obamacare, healthcare, the labor market, and, and all of that stuff. So I hope that that's going to be the entire Reason Magazine, just your article. Uh, no ads, no other, uh, no, other ar yeah. no other articles, because that just sounds fantastic. I could have written, I could have written like uh, 20,000 words, but I had like 1,300 on the, oh. And the next, the, 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 my article after this is about the cost of wars. And, uh, and it's like, it's big, it's growing. And the part that's growing and it's unseen is the unfunded liability, pension, disability, uh, healthcare, because a lot of our wars now, they don't, it doesn't, they don't kill people anymore, which on one hand is a great thing. But on the other hand, it's very expensive, and uh, and 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 this is never taken under account. Um, you know, when when warmongers decide to go to war. Yeah, I mean, one of the strategies of the French resistance under the Nazis was never kill the German. You know, wound yeah. him, 
uh, because that's going to be more expensive, more time consuming, more problematic. If you kill him, they just bury him in a field. But if you wound him, they have to keep paying and health care and pensions and all that. So if you want to economically cripple someone, the last thing you want to do is kill their soldiers. So uh, they're being very effective in the weaponry that they're using, which is, again, another thing that's going to cripple the U.S. economy. I think the unfunded liability war costs are estimated into the trillions now. It's staggering. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Cost of War website is a good place to go, costofwar.org, I think. And and there you have all the wars broken down by cost, cost of personnel, unfunded liability, and it's pretty astonishing, yes. Well, of course, I, I certainly appreciate the degree to which uh, your very entertaining and elegant writing is, is bringing these ideas to the masses. It's always a pleasure to read you. Always a pleasure to chat with you. I hope we can do it again sometime. And uh, thank you so much for your time again tonight. Take Thank care. you for having me. Good Bye. night.